uh, the topic that I want to consider with you uh, this evening, which is the whole question of Christ in the Old Testament, uh, particularly, it's a very large topic. Uh, here we'll uh, concentrate our attention on a passage, probably the most decisive passage in the Bible, in, in addressing this issue uh, of how uh, we are to look at the Old Testament in relationship to uh, Christ. Um, <clears throat> anyone that doesn't have, uh, you should have an outline sheet and then a, um, a, a sheet with some uh, scripture on it. Um, the outline sheet's a little bit, uh, it's a bit cramped. I tried to get everything on a single page is the reason for that. Now, if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Luke 24. Um, I'd like to read a couple of portions of it where we're going to concentrate our attention. Uh, first, in Luke chapter 24 at verse 25. <clears throat> and this chapter, as you're aware, what we have uh, at the very beginning is a description of the resurrection. And then Luke's account of what happens uh, subsequent to the resurrection. Uh, that we're going to see is a rather decisive, important consideration that uh, we have here teaching of Jesus from a post-resurrection perspective as he is now raised from the dead. Uh, as you'll recall, one of the uh, first uh, events that Luke relates is what happened actually on the day of the resurrection where Jesus accosts or comes in contact with these two men on the road to Emmaus. Uh, and uh, in the course of his interacting with them uh, and predict particularly addressing uh, their perplexity about what has happened uh, to Jesus, um, we won't go into the details of that uh, here, we'll just pick up at verse 25, where Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Uh, and then coming later in the uh, chapter to the verses we're going to concentrate on primarily, uh, beginning at verse 44. Then he said, this is Jesus, he said to them, the, this is the 11, uh, the this, uh, original circle of apostles minus Judas. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Is my voice coming through too loudly? All right. I, I can hear myself. Probably. <clears throat> now just to... Uh, set a certain background before we get into looking at uh, into these verses. Um, we can put it as a question. Does the Old Testament reveal Christ? Does the Old Testament teach about Christ? Now, in fact, that is to raise a question 
uh, that uh, there has been considerable difference of opinion, a discussion about from virtually from the very beginning of the church's history. And we can just note very uh, quickly uh, certain denials that go back just about as early uh, as the church's history. Uh, there is this uh, individual Martian uh, in the, the second century who took a position, a heretical position as the church came to judge, uh, that really uh, the Old and New Testament had nothing to do with each other, just to um, deal with his position, uh, I think, in a, in a very uh, general way, but I think to get to the heart. In fact, he even argued that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Uh, and there were other... Uh, uh, questionings and denials of uh, the role of the Old Testament in the life of the church. And, we, and you can say, I think, with some fairness, that as important an issue as any for the church during the first century of its existence beyond the apostolic age in the second century uh, was to come to, uh, to address the issue and, and to decide that the Old Testament truly belonged to the Christian Bible. In fact, the church comes to the position, and, it, and this continues to the present, by the way, to be a matter of offense as you, as you come in contact with uh, Jewish people, particularly Orthodox Jews. The church comes to the conviction that the Jewish Bible, if you will, what we call the Old Testament, more properly belongs to the church than it does now that Christ has come uh, to Judaism that rejects Jesus. Uh, coming to, uh, up to the present, however, um, we can note that this, this, uh, this position of, of denying that the um, Old Testament and New Testament, Old Testament and particularly Christ, have anything really to do, each, to do with each other, uh, we can see that across a certain spectrum, positions which in other ways are quite at opposite poles. Uh, there's the position of the, mo of, of the historical critical approach of the approach to the Bible that has come into so many academic circles, particularly in the last couple centuries, uh, which uh, makes human reason the ultimate point of reference and in, in judgment in studying the Bible, uh, argues that the Bible is to be treated just like any other uh, set of historical documents that has come down to us uh, from the past, has, has uh, whatever may be the uniqueness of its subject matter, uh, religious content, it, it's, it's a book of human origin like any other book. And, and, and that uh, frequently, characteristically, in, in this approach to the Bible, it's, uh, it's just denied that the Old Testament has anything to do with Christ, that you only find old Christ in the Old Testament by reading, forcing Christ into the Old Testament. He isn't there. Uh, coming much closer to home, I guess, in a way, uh, then there's the position of uh, dispensationalism, uh, which uh, I don't know how familiar that word is to you, but this is really the viewpoint of most American evangelical Christianity, or a large, important sector of it. Uh, and this is a position that argues uh, that basically the Old Testament is about God's promises to Israel as a nation, God's promises to Israel as a geopolitical entity. Uh, and that what happens in the New Testament uh, in Christ is death and resurrection, the establishment of the church, 
made up not only of Jews but of non-Jews, that that's really kind of an interruption, a, a parenthesis is sometimes put, uh, so far as God's promises to Israel are a concern. So uh, dispensationalists, of course, will affirm fully with us that the Bible is God's word, uh, but are very unclear about how the Bible, how the Old Testament is a book about Christ. Well, um, just with that sketch to provide a little uh, framework for uh, the continuing importance of this issue, uh, I want now to direct our attention uh, to the passage in Luke 24, to the teaching of Jesus Christ after the resurrection, teaching which I hope you'll agree with me uh, decisively uh, and, and, and so very clearly uh, makes the point that the Old Testament is about Christ. In fact, as we're going to want to accent, the Old Testament is all about Christ. Now, um, this, uh, if we talk just a, a bit about the setting, uh, as we've already in, indicated, uh, this is the resurrected, not just any Jesus at any time teaching, but it is Jesus as resurrected that is teaching. And particularly, uh, we find Jesus here uh, in the period between the resurrection and the ascension. And this period, we can say, is in a certain respect uh, a kind of unusual, uh, in a way even odd sort of period. Uh, we might put it this way, uh, if I make a distinction that I think uh, is, is, uh, most of us uh, uh, can, can appreciate. We have Jesus here entered into his state of exaltation. He is now the glorified Lord Jesus. He's no longer suffering. The cross and that suffering is behind. He is in his state of exaltation, but he has not yet gone to his place of exaltation. He has not yet ascended, as Luke 24, uh, beginning at verse 50, you'll see just uh, beyond uh, verse 49, uh, describes that for us. So it's, it's a period that's a little bit unusual. It's a period, actually, that the Gospels don't really tell us a whole lot about. Uh, but even though, even though that's the case, uh, we ought not to think that this period is somehow unimportant, uh, particularly because of what Luke teaches us here about what happened. And we can say that um, especially as we look at uh, verses 44 through uh, uh, the unit, verses 44 through 49, and we'll focus especially on verses 44 through 47, um, what, these, what this passage, I think, uh, as we read it, what we need to appreciate is that Luke wants us to understand that this is a description of what was typical during this uh, 40-day period, as we know it to be uh, from the book of Acts, um, 40 days between resurrection and ascension. Um, if you have the Bible in front of you, you can follow this, because um, uh, uh, I want to underline it, it you'll see presently it's, it's a point that has uh, some uh, significance to it when I say that this, was a, uh, this describes what was typical, what was characteristic. Um, if you work through the passage more carefully than you have uh, the time uh, to do right now, you'll see that everything through verse 43 takes place on the day of the resurrection. 
uh, if you work back, you I, I think you would see that there are there are uh, the, 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 the discourses tagged with time references so very clearly on the day of the resurrection. Now, when you get through verse 43 up to the one side of our, of our section. Now, when you get to the other side at verse 50, you'll see we're at the ascension. And we know that's 50 days later. But now when you look at verses 44 through 49, there is no time indicator there. Uh, and I think uh, that points us to the fact that uh, to be sure, this may be a, a description of what took place on a, a, a particular day, but as that happened, it, it wasn't that it just took place that one day, but as it happened, that was characteristic or typical of the teaching of Jesus throughout this entire 40-day period. As one commentator has it, I have it there in the parenthesis, uh, what we have here in verses 49, 44 through 49, is an extremely succinct account of what happened further. Now, if we, if, if you, if we look uh, more particularly at verses 44 through 47, we see that it was, uh, from the passage, a time of teaching. A time of teaching... Uh, you can kind of, uh, I like to think of it this way, our, uh, our uh, uh, co- particularly college curriculums, uh, uh, academic years, they often have a, an intensive month-long term, January term. Well, what we have here is a 40-day intercession, if you will, between the resurrection and the ascension when Jesus, we can say, is in effect giving a crash course on Old Testament interpretation. He is teaching his disciples now how the history of redemption, having reached the point that it has in his death and resurrection, how from, uh, uh, how having reached that point, looking back, uh, that history is to be understood, how the Old Testament particularly uh, is to be understood. And there's a detail uh, particularly there in verse 44. I don't know if you've ever noticed it before. Uh, that is uh, quite striking. Jesus says, these are my words, what I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now, something about that a minute. He's standing right there talking to them. And yet he says, what I'm teaching you now is what I was teaching while I was still with you. Now, of course, he's looking back and thinking about his earthly ministry. Uh, the period before the resurrection. But you see, that is an indication to us of what we don't, I think, often enough appreciate how decisive, how important the resurrection is as an event that has taken place. Who Jesus is now, as exalted, uh, as resurrected from the dead, uh, is of such an importance, in fact, is of such a, a transformed significance that compared with what took place previously during his earthly ministry, measured from the vantage point of his earthly ministry, it's as if he was no longer with them. Now, if you look then at the uh, end of verse 44, uh, you'll see uh, what Jesus had to teach. He says, I'm teaching now what I taught you all along during my earthly ministry while I was still with you. And what is that? That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Now that gives us, you see, an indication of the scope, the very sweeping scope. If we use a, uh, uh, a model of a circle, the circumference of Jesus' teaching during uh, this 40-day period. He is concerned to teach them everything that is taught in the Old Testament about himself. And uh, it can be pointed up that, uh, see how he refers to the Old Testament here in terms of what by this time are our standard uh, threefold designation, the law, the prophets, uh, the writings here specifically, and what is central, uh, the Psalms. So he's saying uh, the whole, uh, we won't get into the question here of the exact state of the Old Testament canon at this point, uh, but we can surely see it as, as taking a, a shape here, uh, as Jesus refers to it. And he's saying that the Old Testament in all its parts, its basic threefold division, that refers uh, to him. He's concerned to teach what in those sections uh, concerns him. Now, um, let me uh, zero in a bit further here. And, um, oh, and I, I should have pointed out, uh, if, you, if we back up in the chapter, and I have the verses there right at the... Um, at the top there, you back up to verses 25 and following, um, you'll see that this was basically what Jesus had to say to these uh, two men on the day of the resurrection. Um, that um, it was necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So that happened already on the day of the resurrection, and characteristically, uh, this is what this is characteristic of the teaching of Jesus during this 40-day period. Uh, everything in all parts of the Old Testament about Him. And by the way, let me just point up one factor there in verse 25. Uh, we won't uh, spend a particular amount of we won't spend the amount of time on it here that we could. Notice what Jesus, how Jesus addresses these people. He doesn't, these two men, he doesn't simply give them information. He says that they are foolish, foolish and slow to heart. That's a pretty direct and even chastising way of speaking. See, these men uh, had expressed uh, uncertainty. They were perplexed, distraught because of, of, of what was going on with Jesus. And he's saying, I think it's fair to put it this way, if you understood your Bibles, because at this time there's no strict Old Testament, New Testament distinction, the New Testament isn't written yet. He said, if you understood your Bible, that is, if you understood the Old Testament, uh, then you would see these things. And I think that points us to what sometimes can get blurred, uh, not that there are not, uh, not that the, in the light of the resurrection and the New Testament, we see with a, with a fullness and a clarity that wasn't true under the Old Testament. But there is an essential clarity to the teaching of the Old Testament as it teaches about Christ and about his death and resurrection. Now, um, I meant to say when I got started, what I intend to do is, is talk for a while and... Uh, I hope to leave some time uh, for questions, but I don't want to uh, 
uh, particularly as we're going along, uh, especially if I say something that isn't clear or, or needs some, some clarification, be, uh, be sure to flag me down. All right. Um, now, what I would like to do next is um, focus in on what might seem to be a kind of fine point, a grammar point, and that is to look in verse 44 at the prepositional phrase in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And that would be, uh, if you look back at verse 27, uh, the two men on the road to Emmaus, uh, the, the, uh, the prepositional phrase there in verse 27, in all the scriptures. And the question that I want to raise here is this. Um, is that prepositional phrase, the force, well, you can, just, you can look at it this way, the force of that, of that preposition, the little word in, as it functions in this phrase. Uh, is, it, is that phrase comprehensive? That is, is it intending to include everything in the Old Testament? Or is it rather the case uh, that it only has a partial reference, as if uh, Jesus is saying, well, I want you in the law, prophets, and psalms to... Uh, See there the things that concern me, but there are other things uh, that don't concern me. So that's the question I want to raise with us. What, what is it? Is Jesus saying, uh, is he intending to bring everything into view in the Old Testament in that phrase, or only some things having to do with him in distinction from others? Now I think uh, the answer to that question uh, is the first uh, of, the, of the two uh, options that I put. That Jesus is intending here to be comprehensive. He's intending to say that everything, without exception, in the Old Testament, in one way or the other, has reference to him. I think there are two reasons that we can uh, be uh, fairly confident about that. Uh, the first is... Uh, point is the one that I already gave some attention to. That's, keep in mind here the context. Remember what we pointed out, uh, that this is a count of what is typical during this period, uh, Jesus, what was typical of Jesus' teaching. And if that's the case, if, if this description is what's typical, uh, you see, it would, be not, uh, it would be hard to imagine that in this period, uh, Jesus was looking at the Old Testament and saying, now, uh, disciples, I want you to only look at these parts here, here, and there. Forget about the rest of the Old Testament, uh, which uh, doesn't have anything to do with me. I want you to uh, look at only uh, uh, particular sections in distinction of, from others. Um, I think that's not plausible a uh, way of looking at, at what's happening here. In fact, we know from the book of Acts, without probably taking the time to turn us there, uh, that, uh, well, if you look at Acts 1-6, uh, there's uh, um, the deal here, uh, the um, state of affairs here, is that uh, the end of Acts, the end of Luke, the close of chapter 24, and the beginning of Acts 1, they overlap. Uh, remember, uh, Luke Acts is a two-part work. 
to this uh, figure Theophilus. And that shows uh, how they're to be read together. Uh, and we're told there uh, that during this period between the resurrection and ascension, uh, the disciples asked Jesus this question, Lord, at this time, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? In other words, the whole issue of Israel and its future and its expectations came up. It was on the agenda uh, during uh, the, um, this uh, 40-day period. And so it isn't uh, that Jesus and, and Jesus, in his response to their question, uh, if we had the time to get into it, uh, I think what we would appreciate that uh, Jesus is, in effect, by the way he answers, uh, correcting the way they're asking the question. Uh, at any rate, he tells them, you're not to be so much concerned about the future, but you're to be concerned about the present, which is Acts 1.8, taking the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And in fact, we could say from uh, uh, the vantage point of the New Testament as a whole, the the disciples had the the question wrong. They needed to turn it around. The question they should be asking, Jesus wants them to understand, is not, are you, Lord, restoring uh, the kingdom to Israel, but when will Israel be restored to the kingdom? Uh, And the answer is, Israel does have a future. Yes, it's the same future uh, that the Gentiles have in the church. But, um, uh, so I think the idea that uh, Jesus was only dealing with part of the Old Testament uh, during this 40-day period is, is, is just not plausible. But there's an even more decisive consideration here, uh, and that is to look now at verse 45. Then, we're told, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds to understand the scripture. And uh, if you have Bible in front of you, I don't have um, the... um, uh, it down on the paper, but you'll see see how the two men on the road to Emmaus, look at verse 32, reacted uh, when Jesus dealt with them and they came to recognize who he was. Uh, their description, didn't our hearts burn with us, in us, when he opened up uh, the scriptures on the way? So that, uh, notice now how Jesus expresses himself here. Uh, he says, he doesn't say, or Luke uh, doesn't say that he opened up their mind to understand these scriptures or that scripture or some scriptures. It's just a flat assertion. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures. Um, the scriptures in their wholeness. The scriptures in their entirety. If we uh, took the time, we could explore further and and, and see that uh, this expression, the scriptures, is one of the standard designations, not only within the New Testament, but within uh, the Judaism of this period, for referring to the Jewish scriptures, uh, to, to to in effect, the Bible. And so it's a a term that brings into view, particularly as uh, as we would use scriptures today in the plural, it brings into view uh, the whole 
as it consists in a number of parts. And we're told here that as Jesus taught the disciples, as he pointed up to them in the Old Testament in all of its various parts, uh, what was taught concerning him, what happened then, the effect of that is that they were, their minds were open to understand the scriptures. Again, not just some, but the scriptures in their entirety. So that brings us to this important uh, conclusion, if, if we're uh, on the right track in, in our reflections. What Jesus did during this 40-day period, what he was intent on doing for his apostles and doing for them, you see, not just for them alone, but as they were to be the, uh, the foundational teachers for the New Testament church in all ages, he was opening, bringing their minds to a new and clarified understanding of what the entire Old Testament was about. In pointing to himself as what the Old Testament was all about, Jesus was showing the disciples how the whole Old Testament hangs together, how it makes sense, because Jesus says, it is about me, about me. And so, as we could put uh, this conclusion, adapting uh, the language of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, speaking about the scriptures, we can say that what happens during this 40-day period, as Jesus teaches his disciples, uh, as he addresses to them what the entire Old Testament and all its uh, parts is about, uh, what they came to understand is that Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ we see the consent of all the parts, how they cohere, how they harmonize, how they agree, how they hold together, and what is the scope, what is the scope of the whole. Now, with those observations, um, look now at verses 46 and uh, 47. Uh, because uh, we can say that if verse 45 shows us that Jesus' teaching about the Old Testament was all-inclusive, that when he said, uh, in all the law, prophets, and psalms concerning me, he wasn't just thinking about some parts, but all parts, uh, that that is the true circumference, if you will, of, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, of Jesus in the Old Testament. We can say that verses 46 now show us what is at the heart, what is at the center. It is written, Jesus said, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, it is written, uh, again, if uh, we could point out, that's a standard citation uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, elsewhere in, in extra-biblical uh, Judaism of the time, uh, for citing scripture. And Jesus is saying now, it is written, as we look at the whole of the Old Testament as it is about me, and in effect, ask what is the center of that teaching, Jesus says, and notice now, there are three elements. 
his death, his resurrection, or more broadly, a messianic suffering and glory, his humiliation and exaltation. But along with that, worldwide preaching of the gospel. Now you'll notice um, after um, worldwide gospel preach, if you have the outline, I have a little parenthesis with an equal mark and a question mark, uh, equal sign and a question mark. Uh, that's my uh, bit of effort here to be Socratic, to try to nail down, underline a point. Um, what happens when you preach the gospel of repentance? What's the overall result? In one word, what's the overall result? What happens? What gets established when the, the message of repentance is preached? All right? The kingdom, but uh, where do you find the citizens of the kingdom? In the church. See, this is what gospel preaching, the message of repentance, accomplishes. It, 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 uh, it, it converts individuals, to be sure. Uh, it, it, it brings uh, the conversion of individual sinners. But that never happens to them just as individuals. Uh, because, uh, you know, the one and the many is, is never a, a problem in the Bible. Uh, individual, personal, and corporate. There, there's never any tension there. Uh, to be to belong to Christ uh, by your individual salvation is always to belong to the church. And, and you see, what Jesus is saying now is written in the Old Testament at its core in all of its teaching is his death, his resurrection, and what is inseparable from that, the church. So you see the notion that the church is somehow non-essential or even a so-called unforeseen mystery in the Old Testament uh, is just, uh, I don't think, it's just contradicted by the words of our Lord here in, in, in the flattest and clearest fashion. You cannot have Christ's death and resurrection without the church. Because that's why Christ suffered and died for our salvation, for the church, that he might be firstborn among many brothers, as we read, for instance, from Romans this morning. Now, um, let me, uh, that raises the question, though, now, uh, uh, that if you had a chance to think about it, um, and, or if you've studied uh, the Old Testament somewhat, you might begin to wonder about where in the Old Testament do we find it written uh, that the Messiah would suffer, die, uh, and the gospel would be preached to the ends of the earth? Well, you see, when you start searching the Old Testament, you don't find, uh, I think it's fair to say, any one particular passage that uh, you, know, you could sort of uh, quote, turn back there and, and read it. Uh, and I think what that points us to consider here is that Jesus is telling us that as we look at the teaching of the Old Testament as a whole, uh, this is how we are to see uh, 
how its message is 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 structured and pointing this will this is what is central not so much that you find this written in one particular passage but as you work through the old testament these elements this triad if you will messianic suffering and glory and uh uh the universal church are uh, if you will the substance of what the old testament is about Now what I'd like to do very quickly uh is is give an example of that um and that's the other sheet if you pick that up and and uh and look at it we can um um uh comment um on one old testament passage and uh, I offer this as an example of how we ought to understand uh get some idea of what it means when Jesus says uh in um Luke 24:40 uh 6 and 7 it is it is written um now um the uh Isaiah 49 is one of the of sometimes referred to as the servant psalms um and again to make a long story short we know from the uh uh as as we would study and reflect that uh that this servant uh is in a prophetic from a prophetic angle this servant uh is ultimately the person of the Lord Jesus the Messiah and uh, I've highlighted some things uh there probably I've highlighted so much that uh it ceases to have to be particularly effective but um uh, let me just point up a couple things see he made my mouth like a sharp sword uh there is is a picture of uh as Christ is pictured in the in, in the New Testament uh, uh the executing the word of God coming from his mouth but uh, you are my servant Israel now there's a plural but when you get down to verse 6 you can see that the servant uh the servant is doing something for Israel to raise up the tribes of Jacob so the servant is an individual even though uh he can be seen to stand for the whole so there's the person of Christ now we see in verse 4 the servant uh says i have labored in vain i've spent my strength for nothing in vanity yet surely my right is with the lord and my recompense with my god so here in verse 4 you have a a, a a kind of lament of the servant uh that he is uh serving the lord he's the lord's servant but his labors his sufferings are in vain and here we can think ahead to Isaiah 53 uh, in the description there of the suffering servant uh, that is more uh, familiar uh, to us and at the same time as he raises that question he at the same time is confident that the lord will vindicate him uh, the lord will reward him for his sufferings So there you see uh is comes into view the messianic suffering. And if you look down to verse 8, uh the Lord says uh to the servant, "In a time of favor I answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people." Now what you uh what we need to uh notice is that um 
If you look down at the bottom of the page, the New Testament, Paul makes use of this passage. Particularly if you look in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he quotes Isaiah 49, 6, where uh, the, excuse me, 49, 8, where uh, you see the servant said, in a time of favor I answer you and I've helped you. Now, uh, as we would work through the Second Corinthians passage, um, and I, I've, particularly as I've uh, bracketed out there, you see verse 14 of chapter 5 refers to the death and resurrection of Christ. For their sake, he died and was raised. And the result of that is the new creation. And with that, the reconciliation of the world to himself, verse 18. And Paul sees all that as tied to the fulfilling of that prophecy in Isaiah 49, that in a favorable time I listened to you, day of salvation, I have helped you. So you see, that brings into view of the help that the Lord gave his servant the deliverance and the day of salvation that he brought about after he suffered and died in his resurrection. So it's in this way we see that it is written, for instance, in this Isaiah 49 passage, uh, that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. But then what about that third element? Well, look back, uh, that is, uh, uh, of the church. Well, Paul. notice that Paul calls attention to that what has happened in the cross of Christ is nothing less than reconciling the whole world to himself in verse 18. But you see, that is echoed back there, or this echoes on uh, the passage back in Isaiah 49, um, where, look now at verse 6. The Lord says, it's too light in a way, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. In other words, it's, it's too little a thing for you just to bring Jews to salvation. I will make you a light for the nation that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And you see, that's a description of the church. The message of repentance for the remission of sin among the nations. So I hope I didn't do that too quickly, but we can see then in this segment in Isaiah, and we can work through other passages, how the elements of death, resurrection, and church, the three things that Jesus says are to be written, are written, are there. Let me conclude with a couple of observations um, on this whole issue of Christ in the Old Testament, we can say that there are two extremes to be avoided. Uh, there are some folk who would say, well, you can only see references to Christ in the Old Testament where there is an explicit, uh, that, that point is made explicitly in the New Testament. One example would be, just think of a past, uh, uh, John Curry's been working through uh, John, and we've been in John 3, uh, they would say, uh, John 3:14, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, we can see Christ there in that incident uh, in the, in, uh, of the wilderness generation. 
But only when we find the Old Testament, uh, only when we find the New Testament making a particular point can we say that. We see that cuts across the grain of, 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 the, of the sweeping emphasis that Jesus is giving in our passage. Um, we are, I think, prompted uh, to, uh, by what uh, we see the evangelist saying there in John 3.14, uh, to recognize and see other, uh, along other lines how, um, how the, uh, the Old Testament is about the Messiah's suffering and glory. The other side, we probably need to talk about that more, but the, the other side is, uh, uh, the other stream is sort of going around and, and, and taking a very kind of mechanical approach to the Old Testament and in every verse trying to find some uh, special uh, message about Christ. Uh, the example that comes to mind here, so then uh, uh, people have decided that uh, the scarlet cord that uh, two spies told Rahab she was to uh, keep down, uh, hang out the window so that she'd be, uh, she and her family would be delivered when uh, Jericho fell to the Israelite armies. Uh, that is uh, supposed to refer to the blood of Christ. Uh, so I think that uh, that would be a danger, uh, a speculation that you need to be uh, careful. The it, it, uh, Old Testament comes into becomes a kind of a hermeneutical scavenger hunt um, contest to see who can find the most uh, subtle allusions to Christ in the Old Testament. So. Uh, Maybe we can focus it this way. Uh, if we put the question, Christ is in every sentence of the Old Testament, is that true or false? Well, if we answer that question in the kind of atomistic way I was just talking about, trying to find a, a particular uh, message about Christ in, in every sentence of, of the Old Testament, then uh, the answer is no. But if we look at it this way, that every passage in the Old Testament is in a context. Every Old Testament text is in a context. And that context is the overall history of God's, the overall context of covenant history, the overall history of God's, God dealing with his people. And that is a history that is always going somewhere. And where that history is always headed and in all of its parts is to be related, uh, where that's all headed is what Jesus makes clear in our passages, what took place in Christ and most pointedly in his death and resurrection. I wanted also to make... Um, uh, this point too. It, it could... Uh, sometime uh, it could be argued, uh, people argue that the focus so on the cross and resurrection uh, becomes too Christ-centered and, and loses sight of the fullness of, um, of the revelation of the triune God that we have in Scripture. Uh, I suppose that could be hap happen, but I don't think uh, uh, that is at all necessarily the case because what we need to appreciate, I think, more than we do uh, sometime is that is the scope, the large scope and implications of the salvation that was accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection. Um, and uh, here we can pick up on the passage that we read in, uh, in, in uh, this morning. See, this is what Paul is getting at. Um, 
in Romans 8, uh, he says as he looks, he's just been talking about what has happened in the cross and resurrection, and as believers are united to Christ, and made that statement that, uh, uh, that Reggie was focused on in his sermon, uh, the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. Then he continues... For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. So you see, it's not only Christians, it's not only believers that groan for the full possession of their salvation, but the entire creation has a stake in what took place in the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, And um, I was talking with someone in the coffee break this morning. Um, Maybe I just put it this way. Um, You know, what is at the heart of... Um, reformed Christianity, reformed outlook on scripture, biblical Christianity. Uh, Well, we often say the five points, the tulip. And they, of course, are very central. But I I would uh, would challenge us, we need to think more than we do sometime, that that what is, is, is the, nothing is more basic than this, that redemption, our salvation, what has been accomplished in the cross and resurrection of Christ is ultimately, in order, as Paul points us to consider here, uh, to restore the entire creation, to restore and bring creation to the perfection that God intended for it uh, from the beginning that became uh, destabilized and brought under curse because of sin and that Christ in his redemption Uh, takes away that curse. So the focus on the cross and resurrection of Christ is in no way a narrowing, uh, uh, in no way narrowing, but has to do uh, with the great cosmic scope of our salvation. All right, well, um, it is uh, past our time. Um, Let me close us with prayer. Our God, we bless you for how it is true that whatever your promises there are, that in the Lord Jesus Christ they have their yes, uh, their firm amen to your glory. We praise you, our God, that you have given us a share in this great salvation. And we pray, our God, that you will continue uh, to give us insight as we read your word that more and more as we search the scriptures and as uh, we are taught from your word, uh, we might see uh, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, more and more evidently. And in seeing, we pray, our God, uh, that our own lives might be transformed to your glory. Uh, Bless the time we've spent together this evening uh, toward accomplishing uh, that. In Jesus' name, amen.